You ever heard the phrase from hero to zero, right? You can actually look that up in the Cambridge Dictionary. And it's a phrase, and it means this, a situation where someone goes from being very celebrated and popular to being very unpopular. So I thought I would think of some famous heroes to zeros. The first one I came up with was Marie Antoinette. She was the queen of France. And I actually, in my 23andMe DNA, am somehow related to her. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but it means we've got some French in us. But um, she went from being one of the most privileged queens, the queen of France, to being beheaded and thrown into an unmarked grave like that. She went from hero to zero overnight. Football fans, NFL fans. Does the name Ryan Leaf ring a bell? The mo- one of the most celebrated quarterbacks coming out of college, I believe it was Washington State, and uh, the San Diego Chargers draft him, and he's the next Joe Namath, is what they were saying. And he play- started two games, did very poorly, got benched, and never really played again. He went from hero to zero on the football field pretty quick. In God's eyes, though, he still loved Back to history. Marcus Licinius Crassus. He was basically Rome's first emperor, the Roman Empire first true leader. And he went from luxury and leadership to death by liquid gold. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun at all. And then uh, remember President Richard Nixon? I'm not a crook, he said. That's his famous little thing he said but he he was a bright political mind and yet now is a name synonymous synonymous say that with me thank you just want to see if you're paying attention with corruption with corruption and uh the whole watergate scandal at the end of the the 60s I thought about giving oj simpson an honorable mention but we're moving on from that so it's palm palm sunday And as we just read the passage of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, fulfilling all these prophecies and doing exactly what the scripture said was going to happen. And he went from hearing Hosanna, son of David, Messiah, and as Christy said, to crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Give us the thief, the criminal, rather than this Jesus execute him let his blood be upon us and our children and that was in less than a week in their eyes he went from hero to zero like that why did that happen well they wanted the 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 people of israel in their understanding or or the interpretation of what the messiah was going to do was to be like a military general and it, go, let's go overthrow Rome. Let's make Israel great again. Let's make Israel a, a new, another superpower kind of deal. And Jesus didn't do that. He came in and, and preached the kingdom of God that, and, and that he wasn't here to overthrow Rome, but he was here to overthrow the kingdom of darkness in his life, death, and resurrection. That's what he came to do. And so... Their darkness blinded them and caused them to murder him. Little did they realize, nor did the kingdom of darkness realize, that 
that by their guilt of crucify him, give us Barabbas, by their very guilt, they were carrying out the plan of God to rescue you and I from our real enemies, which is sin, death, and the evil one. So I've titled today's message, Three Nails. Three Nails. I got three nails up here. What kind of nail would it take to hold a human body to the cross? Had to be big. This is a big garden nail, I think, or something. But What is it? gutter thingy. Thank you, Steve. (laughs) But in all seriousness, like driving this into his wrists so that his body wouldn't fall off the cross, driving it to his other wrist, into his feet, three of these nails. And I think the passage that I'm going to read and, and tear apart this morning, the apostle Paul talks about how These three nails represent something that Jesus took for us when he was nailed to the cross. What he was doing for us, each one of these nails represents that. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and he shamed them by his victory over them on the cross." Using these three nails as an illustration to unpack this passage this morning. Nail number one represents the power of death was defeated and nailed to the cross. The power of death was defeated and nailed to the cross. Verse 12 in this passage we're studying, he says, for you were buried You only bury dead people, right? You were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him, you were raised to new life. Only a dead person is going to be able to rise to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Jesus put death on the cross. He, He dealt a death blow to death. He just literally destroyed death. And that should be stirring some questions in you. And I'm going to try to do my best to answer that here in just a second. Jesus was the representative of humanity. He is called the second Adam or the new true Adam. As the first Adam represents humanity and as, as an Adam all die, Paul says, as in Christ, all will be made alive. He's the new representative 
of humanity. Look what Paul tells Timothy. He says, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It says he destroyed death. In John 5, 24, Jesus says, whoever believes in him crosses over from death to life. When you believe and trust in Jesus, you cross over from death to life. Why do we still die physically then? Did that question pop in your mind when you think, did he destroy death? Why do we still have to experience death? Because this body you're living in, as healthy as you might be or as young as you might be, hasn't been made new. And it won't be made new until our resurrection. When Jesus comes again at the resurrection of the dead, we get new bodies. And all us old farts said, amen. (laughs) Because your body is breaking down. And it has an expiration date. But as the New Testament teaches, it's just a shell. It's a tent for the real you, for your soul and your spirit. When we, at the resurrection, get new bodies at the renewal of all things, when Jesus comes and renews the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to get new bodies like the resurrected Jesus that can't die, that, can't, that that body will never die. We'll have it for all eternity. We won't be able to sin. There won't be sorrow or sickness or health problems or any of these things in the life to come. Hebrews 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Death's a subject we don't like to talk about a whole lot. I've said this a few times, but the comedian Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) That cracks me up because even as believers, we know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We know it here, but we've never experienced it. So it's like, eh, Really? Like, and, and it, it holds this power of fear over us. And he, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus broke that power by his death and then resurrection. And the reality is, as good as life can be, this isn't home. This isn't home. When we die, we're going to go be with the Lord. And then when he decides, he and the Father decide it's time to come back and renew the earth and we'll we'll be be with him. Wherever he's at is our real home. This isn't home. Have you ever had that sense of, you know, in life where, man, if I get the right job, if I get the right relationship, if I get the right this, if I get the right that, then I'll finally feel like I'm home. But we never get there. There's a longing inside of us for something greater than this world. I want to play you a song And I want you to meditate on the lyrics to this song because I want, to the lyrics to this song, I want my disposition towards death and attitude to be like this song. Have a listen.
Death becomes a doorway for the believer. Death just becomes a doorway for the believer to walk through to truly go home. So the first nail represents Jesus defeating death on our behalf. Nail number two. This nail represents the power of guilt and shame being defeated and nailed to the cross. Our guilt and our shame was nailed to the cross. We feel guilty for doing wrong, right? When, when we do something wrong, we feel guilty. We feel a conviction. Our conscience isn't clean. And yet guilt and conviction, guilt can actually be a good thing when it drives me to grace. Because when, when we're convicted and when we know we, we're guilty and we say, I'm guilty, 
then all of a sudden I'm positioned to receive all this grace that he's there saying, yeah, I'm here. My grace is sufficient for you. Shame is deeper than guilt. Shame is a, a, a feeling, an inner sense of being wrong. It's an identity. It's something that we, we, we're, we feel shame for who we think we are, who we perceive ourselves to be versus guilt is for what we do. Shame is for just feeling wrong. You remember in, the, in Genesis chapter 2, um, Adam and Eve are running around the garden and they're naked and unashamed, just strutting around like no, no big deal. And then in Genesis 3, it says they were naked and unashamed. And in Genesis 3, when they sin, when they disobey God, when they do exactly what God told them not to do, and they were deceived by the evil one, darkness, it says that immediately after that, that they sewed fig leaves together to cover up their nakedness. God comes and says, who told you you were naked? Like, who told you you were naked? How do you know that? Well, they had that inner sense of shame. And so they were covering up from God and from one another. And we don't literally wear fig leaves. I hope not. But we have our own fig leaves of trying to cover up from God. God, I'll perform more. God, I'll read my Bible more. God, I'll go to church. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll be better. I'll be better. That's a fig leaf. And we cover up from one another because we're afraid if you really saw who I am, you won't like me. You won't respect me. You won't want me. So we've been trying to cover up ever since. But Jesus nailed guilt and shame to the cross. This is what Paul said in what I read earlier. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us And took it away by nailing it to the cross. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but all of us have probably got a speeding ticket. And if you didn't, good for you. Um, I drive like a grandma since the last time I got a ticket. Joel and Kristen were with me, right? That's the last ticket I got in speeding. And had my youth... Well, you were youth-ish at the time. But anyway... Um, let's say you get pulled over and the officer says you're guilty, you know, you're 15 over, whatever. I'm going to go write you a ticket. He or she writes you a ticket and then comes back to the window and he's holding the ticket. I wrote on this piece of paper, speeding ticket, but, um, (laughs) has the ticket in their hands about to hand it to you and say, guilty, go see the judge. But says, you know what? Feeling in a good mood today. I'm going to just do this. I'm going to cancel your ticket. That's what that means in that he canceled the record of the charges against us and nailed it to the cross. So I wonder today, are you holding on to something from your past that Jesus already dealt with on the cross? Are you holding on to something in the present that Jesus already dealt with, your past failures. Because, listen, guilt and conviction, that leads to repentance. Conviction's job is to say, Scott, stop what you're doing. Check yourself. Check yourself, Scott. 
Repent. And repentance means to go in the opposite direction, to have a change of mind and a change of direction. Repentance agrees with Jesus and receives grace. Listen to this passage out of Romans in the message translation, which is a colorful way of, of, of us reading scripture. It says, God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote or unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. Rules and regulations will never change our heart, will never transform us. We need something outside of us, the Holy Spirit, the gospel, the good news to transform us from the inside out. He took care of our guilt and shame. He took care of our inability to meet all the standards and and all of that. That's why Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. There's no pronouncement of guilt. That's the gospel. Our responsibility in him taking our guilt and shame is to work backwards from who we are in Christ. Work backwards from what he already did for us. Work backwards from the reality that you are a son or daughter of our heavenly father and how do how do families how do sons and daughters relate to their father it's you start from there and learn how to live like jesus day by day circumstance by circumstance this nail represents that jesus nailed our guilt and shame at the cross The third nail represents this, that the power of the evil one was defeated and nailed to the cross. The power and authority that darkness, the prince of darkness, the evil one, was nailed to the cross. Again, if the powers of darkness, they, they, the, the powers of darkness thought they had won when evil men hung, when they influenced evil men to hang Jesus on the cross, to murder him. They thought they had won. They had the, the whole unseen realm of darkness thought we just got the victory because we killed God's son. We killed the Messiah. We win. Little did they know that what Jesus was doing was disarming them by his death on the cross. It says it in verse 15. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. What does it mean to disarm somebody? If you have somebody that has bad intentions, that has weapons, and a police officer or somebody is, tackles that person, takes away their weapons, puts them in handcuffs, they've been rendered powerless. You took away their weapons. Jesus took away the weapons of the evil one. He took away their weapon of the fear of death. He took away their weapon of guilt and shame. And now has empowered us and given us his very authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth are mine. And he gave that authority to us 
who trust and follow him. You have authority over darkness. I'm not saying go get in a fight with the devil or even talk to him. But you have authority in Jesus' name because he is the authority and you're with him. So when the devil comes knocking, just say I'm with him. You take it up with Jesus. Take it up with the one who has all authority. We need to do that, guys. We get pushed around too much by the evil one and his temptations and his divisions and his doubts. We sit there and take it. You don't have to take it. You stand up in Jesus' name to that. John, the apostle in his letter, said, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Let's read that out loud together. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The word devil in Greek is diablos, which it's the same in Spanish. And so he came to destroy the work of diablos, the diablos. And the word diablos means accuser slanderer. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to Timothy, he says, tell the ladies of your church not to diablos one another. Don't slander one another. Don't gossip. Don't accuse. So when we're accusing or slandering, we're just the mouthpiece of diablos. We're diablosing somebody. It's an interchangeable word. Devil and diablos. The devil's a liar. He's a defeated foe. He's a liar. Jesus said that he is a liar and has been a liar from the very beginning. He's always been a liar. And how how does he lie to us? First of all, he accuses God to us. He whispers in our ear, if God really loved you, you would have got that job. If God really, really was good, you wouldn't have got betrayed by that person. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be sick right now. And then he accuses us to us. And he says, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't have done that. And he often does that to me, Pastor Scott. If you were a real pastor, you wouldn't think that. You wouldn't do that. And he is always accusing and lying. The Apostle Paul tells us to be aware of his schemes, that he's going around the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And we just have to say in Jesus' name, you've been defeated. You're a defeated foe. You know what the enemy wants to sow? He wants to sow fear into your life. And if you're walking in fear, if I'm walking in fear in any area of our life, we're not living in what... John says that perfect love drives out fear. It casts out fear. And that perfect love is the love of the Father for you. You have a Father who loves you perfectly. So perfect love casts out fear. Casts it out. So what do we need to do? Daily bathe in the love of the Father. Receive the love of the Father. Talk to Him about His his love for you. And then the other thing the evil one wants to sow is division. Look at our world. He's behind all the divisions in the world and the nations and the ideologies and all the things we could go through. 
The world's going to be the world. And he's going to influence the world. But he also wants to sow division in, in believers, in churches. He wants us to fight over petty things. He wants you to get your feelings hurt so that you take your ball and go to another church or you go somewhere else. He wants to sow a division of, well, we don't believe this perfectly or we don't believe that right and get this theological pride that we got it all figured out. Guess what? None of us have it figured out. None of us do. We're an imperfect church, but we're a community following Jesus together. As imperfect as we are, he's perfect and he's perfecting us daily. power of the evil one was defeated and nailed at the cross. Can I plead with you this morning? Trust the nails. Trust the nails. Trust that he did destroy death. That you don't have to walk in shame and guilt because of your past. And that he's overcome the evil one. And now has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We lack nothing. We just need to know how to access it. And, and we don't need to say, be with me, Lord. He's already with you. We need to say, Lord, I know you're with me. I acknowledge that you are with me. I acknowledge who I am in Christ. I've been saying this for weeks. If you don't know who you are in Christ, go read Ephesians chapter 1. And you'll figure out who you are in Christ and you'll have a little more pep in your step on, on a daily basis. We need to live in that. So putting our trust in who Jesus is, what he did for us, what he has promised about our past that we're forgiven, what he's promised about the present, that we have everything we need for life and godliness, and that we don't have to fear the future because we're with him. We're taking communion this morning. And I set some nails on the communion table that as you grab the elements, um, you'd be meditating on what the nails did for you. Um, I want to thank Sheila Patrick, who's been making our communion bread every week. She gets joy out of doing that. So thank you, Miss Sheila, as Christy calls her. And yeah. Father, as we approach the table, the table of reconciliation, that God was in Christ, the Father was in the Son, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting men's sins against them. And because of that, we implore you, Paul said, be reconciled to God. Lord, thank you for the reconciliation that you did. Today, we come into agreement with you, Jesus. We agree with you that you are Savior. We're not our own Savior. You're the Savior. And that you are the Lord. You're the authority of all things. You're the creator and sustainer and redeemer of all things. We agree with you. We're going to agree with you outwardly by taking the bread and the cup. For your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name. 
Um, all the communion is up at these two tables this morning. So if you want to go grab uh, the elements, take it back to your seat and we'll take it together here after we sing. Oh, 
1 Corinthians 11:23 For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me Think of the nails guys his body was pierced and broken for us and he was giving a tangible um uh, sacrament for us to practice and for and that has been passed down from the disciples one time i heard a pastor say that uh you know it says in the scriptures that um jesus said fulfilled the prophecy in the psalms that he who dunks the bread and the wine is my betrayer and he, this pastor said that he was at a communion where that's how they did communion they had a, a cup of wine and you walked by with your bread and you dunked it in and he said right as he was doing that that scripture came to his mind he who dunks the bread and the wine is my betrayer and he said i'm judas we're all judas we've all betrayed but he loved you so much that he was going to do whatever it took to restore our relationship to the father and to nail our guilt and shame to the cross let's take the bread In the same way after supper he took a cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes the cup represents the cup of the new covenant no longer sacrificing animals or all the things that happen in the old covenant the new covenant in Jesus is the sacrifice of all sacrifices there's no more need for a sacrifice other than us learning how to lay down our lives for one another and to care for one another and as we take the cup together we're agreeing with Jesus we're with him let's take the cup Would you just put your hands out in front of you as a way of a posture of receiving? May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Give you his peace, his shalom. His joy. May you access that peace and joy of Christ that's already yours. in good times and in sorrow and in easy times and in difficult times may you access that peace and joy 
And may we, this week leading up to Resurrection Sunday, Lord, may we contemplate the cross and contemplate all that you have done for us. Thank you for your incredible love. Lord, there's often times where we feel so worthless and and unworthy. And we recognize that we're unworthy in ourselves, but we're not worthless. You proved that to us by sending your son and doing what you did for us. So may each one of us have a sense of self-worth that comes from Jesus Christ alone. Not our accomplishments, not what we look like, not any of that, but that comes solely from you, Lord Jesus. I thank you for every person in here. I thank you, everyone watching online. Lord, there are needs, Lord, that that they're concerned about, that we're concerned about. Thank you for being our provider, our need meter. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.